Hello and welcome to the latest campaign podcast. My name is Matt Barker. I'm campaign features editor and I'm joined today in the studio by premium content editor Nicola Merrifield. Hello, Nicola. Hello. And reporter Charlotte Rawlings. Hello. Yeah, you're right. Now, doubtless most of you will be listening to this while scuba diving off the coast of Bermuda or you're possibly in the shade of a Tuscan olive grove, but some of us still have work to do. Later, work and inspiration editor Imogen Watson will be tackling all things Women's World Cup with Katie Wright from FCB London, Viv Boulder from Dark Horses and Copa 90 Charlotte Thompson. But before all that, here in the studio, we're going to look at a few news stories from the past week. And one of the big talking points this week has been issues around abusive client behaviour. We ran a question of the week on this topic asking how big a problem is abusive client behaviour, prompted in part by an op-ed from Mark Pollard, who's the founder and CEO of global training company Sweathead over in the States. Charlotte, just how much of a problem is this? Sweathead's a fun name, isn't it? It is, isn't it? It is a great name. (laughs) Um, Yeah, well... um... Looking at the question piece, uh, Holly Loxley, Managing Director at Habas London, said everyone who has worked in this industry for more than a few years has seen or experienced abusive client behaviour at some point. Um, Reading that, that made me think it's almost treated as like an inevitability in the industry. She also says that because of the power dynamic between agency and client, it can sometimes go unchecked and it might be difficult to call out. Andrew Stevens, um, co-founder at Good Stuff, said that client behaviour in the main has improved. Clients seem to better appreciate the importance of agency culture. So it seems like maybe abusive behaviour isn't as common these days. Um, I can imagine it was much worse in the past. Um, But the general view in the piece was that abusive behaviour can exist in many different forms. And so it's bound to sort of trickle in at some stage, um, like most workplaces probably. Sounds like it's like the last residue of that all sort of macho work culture, isn't it? A little bit. Yeah, and like it doesn't it doesn't matter how many policies are put in place, there are probably still going to be certain people that find themselves in the workplace that are. I'm not going to use bad word because you told me that I can't swear. Um, but you know, <laughs> there are <laughs> there are unlikable. Because my mum's listening. <laughs> no, so is my mum. There are definitely unlikable people in the world who can probably bring that bad energy to the workplace. Right, yeah. Nicola, is this something you've sort of come across before, not not in your own personal work experience, but I mean, with, with stuff like the um, the knowledge and the school reports and so on, is this something that's cropped up in the past? Well, yeah, so I was just thinking back on other articles that we've published on campaign, um, and it was actually a comment from James Murphy, the chief executive at New Commercial Arts, who took part in our question of the week that Charlotte was talking about, um, something he said around pitching and how that could help agencies, um, you know, maybe get an idea about how the client behaves. Um, so he was talking about the frequency of, of how often a client might call a pitch. And then I was thinking about how bad behavior itself can actually, you know, kind of show itself um, during the pitch. Um And we know that there have been efforts in the past year or so from both the agency and client side to try and refine the pitching process through this initiative, the Pitch Positive Pledge that was launched by the IPA and ISBA. Um, And the aim is to make it a more positive experience in general, focusing on staff well-being. So making sure that a pitch is necessary in the first place or making sure that the... um, 
pitch is not too onerous um, and it respects people's time and that there's also adequate feedback. And during our assessment of the school reports, um, we asked agencies how many pitches were run in line with those commitments, but the figure was only 62%. And when our reporter, Shauna Lewis, spoke to some industry figures, uh, we had Chris Gallery from um, Mother London talking about how pitch processes recently have involved clients sometimes reducing the budget or, or, or revealing that the budget is actually half of what was suggested at the start of the process. So those are examples of bad behaviours during pitches, which then can maybe be a sign for the start of the relationship and how it's going to go. So yeah, it's, it's definitely um, an issue that crops up in lots of different places. And all that content, of course, is still available on the website. It is indeed, yes. You can go and read those articles online now. <laughs> and one of the other big news stories that we covered over the past few days is, is this ban on LinkedIn of an anti-greenwash ad um, created by the Glimpse Creative Collective. Um, this is a film featuring a woman with oil spurting out of her mouth, which isn't particularly pleasant, but it's not exactly a video nasty either, is it really? So what's all the fuss about? So, yeah, this is a film that aims to highlight how influencers can be paid by oil companies to promote their green credentials, when actually that company is only investing a very small proportion in renewables. Um, so it was banned. Um, it seems to be due to the vomiting that you just mentioned. So LinkedIn provided a statement to campaign saying it has clear advertising policies to safeguard its members and that ads that are offensive to good taste are not allowed to run. And that includes vomiting. But we had a, an article online from James Turner, the founder of Glimpse, um, who was questioning that, that decision making um, about his ad. So he was pointing out, rightly so, the severity of climate change in recent months, with there being wildfires and floods. Um, and he was saying, surely that puts into perspective, you know, what is really offensive content? He asks, is it an ad that uses humour or energy companies that are using social media to pull the wool over the public's eyes? Have you seen the film, Charlotte? Yeah, and I watched it before the whole LinkedIn thing happened because I, I wanted to watch it out of curiosity because the idea of calling out you know, companies using influencers to greenwash was interesting and obviously probably more common than people think. Um, and then also the headline on our website said vomiting oil. And I was like, oh, that's like, that's, that's just <laughs> clickbait there. piqued my interest, but it's not clickbait though, that, because it definitely happens. Um, but yeah, so I watched it and I thought, okay, yeah, that's effective. And then when I saw the LinkedIn story pop up, I was like, I need to watch this again. Surely it's not that bad. I don't remember being that repulsed by it. I think it was like more repulsive to think repulsive is such a um, strong word, but it was more repulsive to think about these companies using influencers to greenwash. So I think that point that you made like just now was very valid. Um, and yeah, it's not particularly like nice imagery, but isn't that kind of the point that they're making? Like it's trying to grab your attention. Um, and it's definitely done that. Maybe the whole LinkedIn banning it thing has kind of given it more of a spotlight though. Yeah, it's raised its profile. It probably has helped them <laughs> to, to yeah. get their message of their cause across. Um, I think it's disappointing, though, that like LinkedIn have banned this ad when it actually has very good intentions and it's a very important topic that needs to be addressed. Um, yes. Yeah, it's, it's a disappointing choice. Have a swear, Charlotte. Go on, you know you want to. Just, just... No, I'm not doing it. I'm okay. not rising to it. <laughs> now, also this week, we've had Chelsea footballer, Chelsea and England footballer Raheem Sterling announcing that he's launching his own creative agency called Playmaker Films. 
Shauna Lewis reported in her story that the agency will specialise in an entertainment-first approach and in producing branded content, advertising and music videos. There's some really interesting things happening at the moment with creativity in the beautiful game. Former England striker Gary Lineker's Goalhanger Films has been enjoying great success with its podcasts, while my lot, Crystal Palace, has just announced the appointment of a creative director, the first such role for a Premier League team who will apparently be overseeing the launch of a fashion line over the coming months. Can't wait. And I'm sure you two are both looking forward to seeing me turning up in the office, decked out in Crystal Palace branded cashmere tank top and leather sliders. Um, and then, of course, we've got all these endless kit launches and collaborations with streetwear and fashion brands. We've had Real Madrid teaming up with Yohi Yamamoto, PSG with Jordan, Juventus with Palace. Nicola, I know you're not a massive football fan, but but Charlotte, do you, uh, do you follow anything at all? I'm sorry to disappoint you, but this is going to be a very quiet part of the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The only knowledge I have on football is what I've heard my dad and brother talking about. But I did play at school and I was part of Skills Academy and I won Most Improved Player. So, Oh, really? Yeah. Have you still got a little trophy on your... Yeah, I've still got have it. You? It's the only trophy I've won. <laughs> but you have to bring that in. Yeah. But okay. yeah, I mean, it, it is, as I say, it's going to be fascinating to see what happens this season with all this crossover going on. Um, a lot of clubs, I don't know, they're sort of seemingly intent on positioning themselves as almost like cultural agents. Anyway, talking of football, England's Lionesses have been steadily making progress this week in the Women's World Cup, winning a penalty shootout against Nigeria to edge their way into the quarterfinals uh, and this Saturday morning against Colombia. Work and Inspiration Editor Imogen Watson has been chatting with FCB London's Chief Executive Katie Wright, Copa 90's Head of Women's Football Charlotte Thompson and Viv Boulder, who's Strategy Director at Dark Horses, about matters on and off the pitch. Now, the quarterfinals of the FIFA's Women's World Cup kick off tomorrow between Spain and Netherlands, ahead of England's clash on Saturday against Colombia. The competition, joint hosted between Australia and New Zealand, marks the first time 32 teams have featured, making it the biggest women's football tournament of all time, with ticket sales surpassing 1.7 million. Women's football has exploded in recent years as the quality has improved and the game becomes more widely televised, which in turn has drawn the attention from a number of brands. After a summer defined by Greta Gerwig's Barbie Mania, which became the highest grossing film directed by women, female icons are taken, getting taken more seriously. Uh, daft question to start. <laughs> Have you been watching the World Cup? Yes, of course. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. every second. Especially in work time, yeah. right? I think that was yes. like necessary. Is there any sort of screens on in the offices? Is, we uh, do. Is we, have a, we have a screen on in our, in our big open area, which I have noticed people gravitating towards, especially on Monday. It's actually nice to see people in the office on Monday. But yeah, we've mm-hmm. got a big screen. It's playing the World Cup while it's on. So yeah, yeah. We we actually have two screens: one that kind of faces the editorial team, and one that faces um, kind of where all the desks are sat. But because this one is connected to digital TV and one's um, streamed, one is before the other, so everyone has to go and gather around the one that's quicker, the one that's, that's sooner. Otherwise, you kind of hear a gasp from the editorial team, and then you have to wait and wait for your screen to catch up. I mean, especially uh, after funny. the game on Monday with the with the penalties. Uh, yeah. yeah, I actually watched, watched that one at home with my with my mum and my dog, who is Aww. brilliant therapy for hiding yeah. behind. <laughs> well, you're off to Australia, aren't you? After this, I am. Yeah, that leave. Yeah, not long after. Well, yeah, late this evening. Not that I'm packed yet, 
it's fine. He needs, he needs to pack when you've got a fun podcast to come on. You've got, you just need an England football top and you're all good. Right, uh, that's <laughs> How much would you say this is a landmark moment? How, how does it compare to previous World Cups? I feel like we, um, you know, we say this after every sort of big competition, like, is this the landmark? And actually, like, competition after competition, like, the records, previous records that are set have been absolutely sort of smashed again. So, I mean, I think it is fair to say that, yeah, it, it does feel like a landmark moment with all the sort of points you kind of pulled out before. You know, it's like, I think I saw that traffic to FIFA's platforms in the first 15 days of this tournament kind of surpassed any any all of the traffic for the entirety of France 2019. So from that perspective, um, you can definitely sort of see how, you know, this feels like it's another sort of big moment in, in women's football. Mm. I, I, I just, just before Charlotte jumps in, it feels like it's a long way away. So, you know, mm. you're going to figuratively mm-hmm. get on two flights, right? So I felt like it felt a long way away and then Monday happened. And then suddenly yeah. it felt like, okay, Same for you've me. got more people's attention. You've got more people talking about it down the pub. You've got more things appearing in our social feeds. So it is a landmark moment, but I think realistically it's it slightly overshadowed by the fact that it is so far away. But that was mm-hmm. just my mm-hmm. own personal reflection. Yeah, similar to, to Viv, actually, I was going to say, I feel like we've had so many landmark moments, especially like from a UK point of view, over the last few years where you've had starting off with Sky and BBC uh, taking over the WSL rights, that was huge. That made such a big difference. Then straight off the back of that, you had the Euros and the win. That was huge. You then went straight into to Men's World Cup, into Women's World Cup. And actually that, that worked really well in our favour because that football height, that tournament feeling was still there and, and, it, and it carried on. Um, so I do think this is a, a massive landmark moment, but it's off the back of a few others. But I think what makes this one the most different is this has to stand on its own two feet. Because, mm. yes, we've got the Olympics coming up next year, but actually the next international, like big international uh, women's tournament isn't for another two years after this. Then on top of that, we've got a men's Euros in Germany. It's going to be one of the first men's tournament without controversy around where it is. Mm. Um, so there's going to be a lot more noise around that. So actually, for the first time, we've got this landmark moment, um, but we, we have to stay here. So I think it's different for that reason. Um, but then going back to sort of what, what Katie was saying in terms of it feeling a bit different, I feel like for the first time, you're getting those connections that you don't get in women's football, mm. those human connections, those walking into a pub and the mm. game's on and you can look at someone and you're both supporting the same team or reading the paper over someone's shoulder uh, on the tube because everyone's reading about the game and a really nice example of that was I was walking the dog um, on Sunday uh, during the, the USA Sweden game following it on just uh, just on my phone uh, it got to penalties so then I had to stop and actually stream it just in the middle of the woods <laughs> in North London um, <laughs> because there was no way I was missing that and there was a man walking past walking his dog and he had his headphones on and he just took his headphones out and said are you watching the game? I was like, yeah, I am. Do you mind if I just watch the last few pencils with you? I'm listening to it on my headphones. And we, those ended up being like a crowd oh, of I dog walkers that. around my phone watching <laughs> a, a USA-Sweden game. Not, It wasn't even an England game. And it was, to me, those are the, the connections. Like, I would imagine if I was watching, if that was a, a men's tournament, I would almost mm. expect the people that I passed to ask me what the score is or ask if they can watch. People but wouldn't very be walking. That you get... <laughs> Yeah, or people wouldn't be walking, but um, you, it's very rare that you get those um, those those uh, yeah unique human connection moments, and that's like what I love about being a football fan. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so it's lovely to see. You kind of raise a, a good point there as well, that it's for games that aren't even the ones that you think are going to be like the big pull. And mm. I think that that for me, in terms of landmark moments from a from a brand perspective anyway, that to me feels like there's been a big shift this time around in the sense that we're starting to focus on like real sort of icons and superstars. And you see like Nike and Adidas, are like they've switched their tack to, or it feels like brands are starting to switch their tact from being you know, this kind of like plucky underdog story where you kind of go away feeling a bit sort of sorry for for the women's game. Whereas now it's like, you know, we've got uh, Ada, like Ada Hagenberg, we've got Sam Kerr, we've got um, Russo, we've got players that brands are starting to like put on a, on a bit more of a pedestal and sort of say, you know, these are iconic players from all over the world. So actually it's pulling in people to have more interest in games that you wouldn't necessarily think that people in, England might have an interest in because you want to see Sam Kerr play. You want to see, you know, you want to see um, Razo play. You want to see these different names that are starting to appear as sort of icons of the game now, which is huge. Yeah, it's really interesting that that when you look at how people support women's football, uh, we, we've done some recent research and it fits in with a lot of research that other people have done as well that show that women's football fans support from a player first mentality uh, with a lot of fans saying that they would actually move teams if their favourite player moved from one team to another. You know, we, we, we saw it. I mean, United um, and you know, Russo going to Arsenal, there will 100% be people that will go to Arsenal uh, to, to follow her. When Jordan Nobbs went across to Villa, everyone was just so happy she was going to get her, her time so you can get, uh, get on the plane. So uh, you see that uh, they're supporting in that different way. And whether that's because of the brands who are heroing these players, you're you're seeing them then you're looking to find out where they play or if it's the other way around um on that point that charlotte's make it's we're talking about those winners from the euro mm. cup final mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. and those individuals that maybe some people didn't know maybe some people did know um i would consider myself a lover of all sport right? I mm-hmm. love watching sports, whatever it is, even golf. I know, controversial. But even golf. Even <laughs> golf. Uh, we'll come back to that. The uh, Women's Open is on, starts tomorrow. Um, but if we think about the Euros, if you'd have told me who Beth Mead was before then, but also mm. then her story, to your point, where you can follow an individual and then what they were going through. I just think that makes it more compelling and it makes you feel more about the sport, makes you care more. Um, And I care a lot about sports and everyone on this cares about sports. But suddenly Mm. I think it's that test of my dad along with everything else, because it's not just been all those, you know, football events you've talked about. We've had Wimbledon, we've had the British Grand Prix, we've had the Ashes, both men's and female, right? And then Mm. obviously the hundreds on again for cricket. There is a lot happening. And that's great. And that's really encouraging. But I think my dad is also saying, did you see the women's, did you see the women get through to the quarterfinal? That's my kind of test. Like that's, it's made Mm. his hardcore Man City fan sort of recognize and know the names of certain people. And I think that's, that's what's quite special. Because we were speaking just before about the comparison between men and female sports. Um, And you were saying, Charlotte, that you sort of try and avoid it, but sometimes, you know, you sort of have to. Can you talk a bit more about that? Yeah, so I, I normally absolutely avoid comparing men's sports to women's sports, um, mm. and especially with football, they are a different product, different audience, different fans engage with the game in a different way. Um, yeah, you, you look at how the game's going. Like my my 
dad's friends always like to say, oh, when's women's football going to be as big as men's whenever we go out for dinner? Um, and my answer is <laughs> my answer is always the same, which is that's not the goal. Actually, women's football mm. is growing in a very different way. It's social first, it's community first. Um, so you know, what is the goal? What does that mean? Like, what does this big as mean? So when you start comparing, you're, you're taking away um, a lot you know, a lot of what, the, the good that's happening with the women's game. So, um, And also you end up just arguing. And actually, if you as a men's sports fan or a men's football fan don't want to support women's football, like that's fine. It's not my job to convert you. But if you don't find it interesting, that's fine. I don't find cricket interesting. I don't go and shout about it. I know as my, my husband's a massive cricket fan, and every time I say <laughs> that, he's shocked. I mean, to be fair, I still did go and watch uh, the, the women's ashes because uh, you know, I just love women's sport. But, you know, I don't think you need to be um, convincing people that don't like men's football to, to like women's football. So I try and avoid the comparison. However, after seeing the stat that I'm going to pull up so I don't get the, the numbers wrong, um, around uh, Chloe Kelly's penalty against Nigeria being more powerful than any Premier League goal last season. And whilst I'm against the comparison, I think you know, what it does show is that that quality of product is there. And that a lot of the, the lazy um, pushbacks on women's football, so it's not as good as the men, it's not mm. as skilled as the men. So actually, if you are saying that power is a mark like a powerful strike is a mark of good quality football just across the board here is a powerful striker therefore it must be good quality so I think in certain situations you you can compare um, and just before I, I finish and pass on to Katie and if she's got some interesting uh, builds on that from from other sports but if you think about the the Les Blues orange ad that absolutely split split opinions people saying oh you shouldn't be comparing men's to women's when actually my opinion is it just helped um address those un um unconscious bias around oh of course women's is like that actually maybe that is a sport for me and i think that that stat around chloe kelly does the same there i i charlotte i think that's a great example because normally when you're asked you know what you should and shouldn't do when it comes to partnerships you're like don't compare the women to the men but i think that what that did geniusly is by your it it, it highlighted that kind of misconception that oh this is oh yeah of course i'm watching the stars of the french team i'm watching it but actually watching the women and i think there's that speed there's that elegance i i think it's power and skill combined together we were we were talking about, you know, forever they'd be monitoring how fast you hit a serve in tennis. And the, some of the bigger, better strikers of the ball and are hitting those serves just as fast as some of the men. And the men have obviously got stronger. I mean, they're physically stronger, but they're up there. And I think even with the cricket, I know you don't love the cricket. I love the cricket. I've been, I've been, I've been converted. Um, but the, the, the speed, you know, we have the world's best spin bowler. The world's best spin bowler, female, Sophie Eccleston, she's she's English. She's she's currently captain of the Manchester Knights in the hundreds. And it's and we don't we don't give it as regard as much regard as we should. And I think, you know, Chloe Kelly is just a class act. That there are probably many Premier Football League footballers, and they probably were out on social giving her the credit she deserved for the coolness in which she took us through to the quarterfinals. I just thought it was brilliant. Mm. I think with, with that point of saying um, about how you think there's a lot of people, you know, across social, it's like starting to 
give Chloe Kelly and people like that the credit they deserve. Like the other thing that is quite interesting that I've noticed is a bit of an emergence is I, I spent a lot of time on, on Twitter <laughs> and the meme culture in football is obviously a massive, massive thing. And actually, um, you, you, you kind of see um, that sort of meme culture sort of driving the conversation for football across Twitter for the men's game. That didn't really exist in the same way for the women's game. But it actually feels like now there's a bit of a shift there as well. When you see things like um, Michelle Lonesy's reaction to the Lauren James red card and that kind of emergence of like fun commentary and commentary and that kind of football culture that people love to get involved with, you're starting to see that that's happening no matter if that's the women's game or the men's game. Um, so that's sort of such an encouraging sign because if you looked at that a couple of years ago, you'd, you'd, it'd be hard to find that kind of meme culture around the women's game as well. And that yeah. change is like sort of a big shift in culture there. Yeah, you really just have to know where, know where to look because the, like, the likes of, studs uh um you know have been doing that for for years and years uh but again it's it's very much like if you know you know like if you know where to find them you know like it, it was a you know women's football fan culture is not a new thing you know we've, we've been around for years the difference is it's now coming to the surface and just like you were saying there's people are starting to take notice or actually understand those memes and understand those jokes and uh, you can start yeah. to kind of look at it a lot more lighthearted because I actually, I, mean, I was talking about this with my CEO the other day that we're, we're big, a big, we are big believers that women's football needs villains. I'm aware that's a very controversial thing to say, but you know, it's sport, right? You need to have mm-hmm. heroes and villains. Mm-hmm. You need to have those moments. And I think there is a, a worry that a lot of people, when you're talking about women's football, you can only say good things about it. You can only say nice things about women's footballers. Actually, you need to have those villains because that's what gets that's yeah that's the emotion that's what gets people excited. And we were at the the um, the USA game at Wembley uh, where everyone was doing Rapino and like yeah yeah she's done amazing things like you know, not taking anything away from what she's done for you know, women's sports across the world, um, especially in in the US. But you know also from a sports person point of view. Um, yeah, we think about that goal that she scored and that her celebration against the England fans. You know, that of course we should have a reaction to her coming on you know, in our home pitch. So why not have a bit of that? Um, and I think you need a bit of that as well. I think that's the thing. It's now becoming a bit more mainstream that though, isn't it? Like you're, you're saying, like you don't have to search for it as far as you used to, um, which is, you know, yeah, it, just amazing to see. That theatre of sport, you just reference Barbie right like a film so any film has a start middle finish has a story um Barbie's mm. the hero but the great thing when we woke up or some of us were watching the Sweden US match I mean I wonder how many of us were sort of dipping into our Swedish roots to potentially mm. see the US you know not make that so those quarterfinals I mean it helps the drama I think it also helps draw people in to the World Cup it's like oh it's is it all open who's going to win oh my goodness what a great chance for the for the England team although they've got some of their players injured because they're playing way more sport they're playing way more matches all the excitement right now okay who this final 16 uh, some of the matches that we watched last night. Oh, what's going to happen to it's, it's exciting now, isn't it? That's what we want. That's yeah. what we want, you know? That, it's a great point because actually the, the Fox's campaign, Fox's uh, sports ad was like the, the um, you know, the US versus the world, which was kind of really, I mean, a great, great campaign from their perspective. It really did sort of set that rivalry, but it also kind of told you the story of past World Cups 
which it's true like for for you know I think the last they won the last three or the last two at least and for those World Cups the story has always been around whether the product was there enough because there's one nation who's absolutely dominating they're beating teams sort of seven nil which is not you know was not great for the for the product and now it's a completely different story the USA have been knocked out they've not made the you know they've they've knocked out in the last 16 we've had teams like Germany who haven't made it past the group stages which has not happened before you've got teams like Morocco coming in you've got teams like Jamaica knocking Brazil out it's like these stories are now you know the the product is is so exciting um and that's really come through in this tournament which is you know great for for the prospect of what can happen uh, next tournament when the when the standard just increases another step and I think that's a great example of brands really playing their part in terms of raising the profile in a really organic way that's not a come and support. I mean, there's a, a brand that we won't talk about that is literally their advert is watch women's sport. Um, and, <laughs> no, please talk uh, about is it. That, is that a particular whiskey brand that's maybe using a, a celebrity? Brand. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> break my heart because I love her. Anyway. Um but I think that's a really good example of a brand kind of t- like tapping into that rivalry. It, it, it's getting in, it, it's encouraging people to watch, encouraging people to have an opinion. And then yeah, Nike continued that. I mean, there's Sophia Smith, nice to beat you, was one of the best creatives mm. uh, that I've seen. It was brilliant. You like, I, I didn't know who she was before the tournament, but then I was excited to see her on the pitch. Not because I'd read about her in the top 10 players to watch in the World Cup, but because her character had been hyped up um, and it's a really great way of, of, of brands fueling that passion um, I don't even remember last year I think it was Sweden Adidas did um, the how to beat the Swedish team on the, the Adidas Adidas shirt launch and it's like really fun ways to, to fuel mm. that um, competition and get people excited and tap into football fan passions um, and teach them things they didn't necessarily know about the team in a way that's not mm-hmm. condescending, a way that's not talking down to football fans, but still giving you something that you didn't know before. I, I, do, I do feel like the, the Barbie, because, um, yeah, I've written a bit about the co- comparison between Barbie and, and this World Cup and just like how it kind of feels quite um, crazy that the two have sort of come together at exactly the same, the same point and the point in time. And what's so interesting about that is that Barbie, for, for a product that you kind of felt was always kind of, you know, it's a, it's a product for girls, right? It's like always been sort of seen as that. And I think the shift in, in what Barbie have managed to do is to kind of show that like this, this, why you might think that this is a sort of stereotypical girl product. There is an appetite to see the, mm. this product when you market it in a way that's fun and playful and exciting you can get all these different audiences and actually if we took that through to like like you're saying with, with the with the campaigns that are sort of starting to be fun and playful and focus on these superstars that that appeals to everybody that, that can appeal to a much bigger audience and with brands start sort of having that point of view for women's sport then you know it's exciting it's an exciting prospect especially if they can all come together in the way that the that Barbie did. I was at the Women's Tour de France last weekend. I was very lucky to get invited. Um, and I think there's this wonderful thing with women's sport where you can you can feel very you can feel closer. You can feel closer to the individuals that are playing the sport. Or you can feel closer to the 
you know, being there. There was a very different atmosphere. I mean, I've never been to the men's Tour de France. I do like the Tour de France. Um, I, I think things like Netflix, the Netflix effects, which are helping us mm. understand sports mm-hmm. better, like Unchained or Full Swing. I've got, I know none of you are golfers, but I've got people coming to the office going, I watched Full Swing. Golf sort of seems okay. And I think what it's what they're doing, like break point with tennis, they're turning the camera on the people. And they're making, they're telling their stories, their individuals, and that that makes it more compelling. It, makes, it helps us understand, so we don't feel like we don't get it. And being out of the Tour de France, these these these, these women are incredible. And but mm. there's a much more positive feeling, like the football. When you take, if you go to the football at certain places, especially having been to football in Italy, it's terrifying. And you're and you're even with your when you're with the home supporters, you're getting covered in things. Um, it's intimidating mm. but if you go to the football it's much more family based if you go to the rugby it's the same if you go mm. along to the cricket which is what they're trying to do with hundreds but at the Tour de France even at the side of the roads they they don't like the pe- the cars driving behind the riders but it's much more it's much maybe not maybe less alcohol probably Budweiser doesn't want to hear that mm. with the Women's yeah. World Cup but um, there's definitely less alcohol take on the sides and it's just making for a more kind of inspiring empowering kind of environment and I think that's what women's sport does really well like woe is anyone to question those some of those quarterfinals in at Wimbledon recently the women's they were they were epic they, they were like also the drama of people being knocked out and who's going to be the next best player um, but I do think those stories of those individuals, and we're seeing it, I think, in social media with around the England team, with what's being clever is when some of the brands are putting stuff out, which is just like the playful going behind, because they all are interesting people. Mm. Um, and they've all got different personalities and they're kind of almost embracing that versus here is said player in said outfit holding up said brand. And I think in the way, what's again, what's really clever in it taking like two things that we know for women's football fans, especially as we know that they're player led. Uh, we also know that they were born in social media, like whereas men's football um, was born in traditional media and has had to kind of move to this new social world. Women's football is very much social first. It's where the only place we could find our content before uh, it went on TV. And it's still very much kind of like the hub of the community. So actually you put the two of those together and you don't need to have a big documentary to do storytelling. So yes, those, you know, once in a lifetime drive to survive um, are the stories that make people care about things that they didn't know that they cared about. And that's absolutely what Copper 90 was was built on. Those everything outside of the 90 minutes that makes that 90 minutes matter. However, you don't need to have a full documentary for that. Actually, you can do some really powerful storytelling in 60 seconds. We did, um, a great piece with um, the journalist Miriam Walker Khan, uh, where we were covering uh, the, the um, Pakistani women's football team uh, at the start of the year when they went and did the, the tournament out in Saudi Arabia, and it was just a five-part, four or five-part TikTok series, uh, and it did so well, and it told such an interesting and inspiring story in a way that women's football fans naturally consume media. Um, but you, my um, uh, our head of growth will always say it's not the fact that, that Gen Zs have got less attention span, it's just that there's more content out there. So the pressure has to be on us to make more engaging content and tell those stories. Uh, and I think women's football, especially in women's sport, when, like as Katie said, you've got those additional connections uh, to, to the athletes and they understand that they've got a big role to play as well. That's where you can start to be really clever, take all those learnings. You don't need to have big budgets. You don't need to do big productions. Actually, you find the story, you find an interesting way of telling it, and you can reach so many more people. 
even the, even the little snippets of goal highlights and, and little reels that you see across. I mean, they've done a massive thing for the women's game in terms of like the, the compilations you see on TikTok and across Twitter and all those places where it's just like, you're, you're just showing the, the sort of best clips. You're showing the worldies that are, you know, like goals scored from like miles out and you're starting to see these kind of uh, pieces of individual brilliance. Like, like you say, it, it's, there's it been a bit of a shift. It's like, we're no longer looking at um, sort of seeing social, because there was a sort of a time when clips of women's sports sort of focused to try and sort of demean the sport. It feels like that's kind of changing now. Um, and, and that is, yeah, part and parcel down to social media. And it also can really help brands grow. So whenever we post um, a, a women's football video on TikTok or Instagram, when we look at our viewers, we find that between like 60 and 80% of people that have viewed that content aren't following aren't Copper 90 followers. So for us, the discoverability of these platforms, plus the way that these fans engage with the content, the, the reason that we invest strongly in women's football isn't because it's the right thing to do. It's because we've got a chance to grow our audience by 60, 80% every time we post a new piece of content. And women's football fans don't only like women's football, they might like men's football too, or they might like football fashion, football music, or the other things that we talk about. So once we get them uh, you know, get them to see and, and engage with Copper 90, the chances are they're going to stay. And to me, that's what I think the biggest opportunity for brands is. It's not now just around how can I put my hero cape on and help women's football and help women's sports mm. grow. It's yeah. actually how can this crazy growth of the sport um, help your brand grow and help you reach new audiences because that's exactly how we see it. Yeah, and how 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 you can bring excitement, right? It's like the the narrative's changed. Like now, it's all about the fun and all about like make me excited for this. Absolutely. You wrote a piece this week, Charlotte, um, that mentioned about the commercial value of the game set to reach new heights, and you wrote that European women's football could have a commercial value of five hundred and seventy eight million. Uh, by 2033 as we sort of end off this podcast I guess you could all talk a little bit about what this message what this valuation to send out to to brands and advertisers yeah so that was quoted from the the UEFA business case for women's football that they released after the Euros, uh, and then Karen Carney's report um I can't remember the number off the top of my head because I'm terrible with numbers I think it's uh, going to be a six billion pound industry anyway I will find the number. I like the sound of that. <laughs> and it was a big, it was a great at talking football, terrible at remembering numbers. Um, but everything you hear, every new report, the, the, the point I'm trying to make is every new report that you see has got a big number attached, a big commercial number attached to the, the, the growth of women's football. Uh, and I think that the, the key message here is this is no longer a good cause. This is smart investment. Actually, if you put your money in now, you're going to grow with the game and it's no longer the right thing to do. It's a really smart thing to do. And I think that's the one thing like when I'm talking to brands uh, that I would want them to go away with and kind of how, but also how we talk internally, like when we're um, planning, when we're thinking about where are we going to be investing, it's not we should be investing more in women's football because it makes us look good. Well, actually, we, we can see the commercial growth. We can see um, the brands that are getting attracted to this. We can see the new audience that it's bringing. Um, and I'm also starting to see like when I go to different events um, and, and, and talk to different people, I used to be able to go to these things and know everyone in the room. And now all of a sudden there's investors, there's brands that have never you know, shown up in women's football before. Like everyone's starting to take an interest. Uh, and to me, that's what's really exciting because it means that actually there, there is money here. There are, it, This is going somewhere. 
Yeah. We actually, the, the, if you look at sort of uh, Angel um, FC and the Natalie Portman sort of team from the, from the US there that they've set up and they're doing sort of an amazing job to sort of bring a bit of a different um, look and feel to, to the women's game. But what was quite interesting is when you, when you hear about um, why that team was set up, um, there's a great quote from Natalie Portman where she was saying about how she's watched her son idolize players like Rapino and Alex Morgan in the same way that uh, kids have idolized Messi or uh, Benzema. And she sort of realized that amplifying female athletes could really rapidly shift culture. And I think that is a, an approach for 2023. It's like, you know, this is this is the time to be shifting to female athletes and female sports in the same way that brands have done for years for men. And if you don't sort of get on board with that, then you're going to you're gonna get left behind. Yeah, I think the message is to invest. I think you need, as a brand, to think about your own values. I think there needs to be that genuine commitment. I think you should do more than said league sponsorship, do event. You know, it's how you behave in between things. You know, we talk, we've been talking about this a lot with a brand that we're working with. You know, their values are really important to them. So if they align with a player or an event or a club or a league, I think it's really, really important that you do it as a kind of commitment where you're committed to helping at the grassroots. You're kind of looking at how you can behave outside of. And I just think it's a great opportunity for brands. I'm coming at it from the not purely football. I think women's sport is at a point like it's never been before. I think it's sad when we see still some sort of like not being able to go fully professional in many other sports like the rugby's. You can see the difference in the Roses. You know, I, no one's mentioned this, but the, the World Cup final of netball was on the other night. Now, I'm not saying netball is going to be the next big thing, but it's it's fantastic that we've had teams that are showing up in finals. I mean, winning helps, let's be honest, right? Winning helps get mm. more little girls or little boys or them or they to want to be the next superstar and mm. I, and I love that it isn't just a male lead sort of role model for those the next mm-hmm. person coming up and and that feeling that anything's possible um because it should be empowering it should be exciting and I think the brands that have decided to commit to those like four year five year deals I think it's really smart mm. yeah and to to just go back to your point Katie on like investing in grassroots I think everyone thinks as soon as you say grassroots, you think of kids playing sport, and there's not like there's nothing no. wrong with that. I think it's absolutely you know, a great thing if that works for your brand. But actually, when you think of grassroots, I would encourage people and brands, especially, to think of grassroots not just children, but grassroots women players. But then beyond playing, like what's the ecosystem that's surrounding these growing fan bases? Who is like the 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 Idas or Faudis? Who are these new startup businesses that are growing off the back of these new sports like what's the grassroots industries that you can be investing in who are the grassroots creators uh, if that's the way that it's going like how we're seeing the same you know, we still have a problem where we still see the same women's football content creators because there's only a handful of them out there doing you know, I, I think they're brilliant we work with a lot of them ourselves but actually you know we need to be seeing more so why are we not investing in more content creators why are we not investing in more platforms why are we not investing in creating uh, that that need for um to create more content so i think when you think grassroots it's not just about sticking your logo on a grassroots football team shirt um which that's great because actually that grassroots team probably needed that shirt but i think you need to think beyond that and think how can you impact that wider ecosystem this is a beautifully creative community uh 
who are kind of doing things their own way, doing things differently. How can you help drive that forward as well? Well, that's all we've got time for, but it's been an absolute pleasure uh, for you all talking about female sports and, and, and why they should be taken seriously. Um, and I'm very excited for Saturday now. Um, and I really, really, really hope that we bring it home. Um, Me too. But yeah, let's all manifest. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Bye. Thanks, Imogen. And good luck to the Lionesses on Saturday. If you'd like to learn more about what we've been discussing today, please visit our website, campaignlive.co.uk. Details of our subscriptions are available at campaignlive.co.uk forward slash membership. If you enjoyed this episode of the Campaign Podcast, please follow us, like us and leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. And a big thank you to Haymarket studio manager Nav Pal, also our producer Aidan Lyons from Rethink Audio. And to you for listening. I hope you'll join us next time. On behalf of the campaign team, goodbye.